Thank you for the introduction. It is truly a pleasure to be your guest here at Asbury. It's my first time at Asbury. I flew in from Korea yesterday. I, uh, stay, I'm honored to stay in your new suites at the inn. The one that overlooks the cemetery has that great view. <laughs> I'm sure there's also a view of the seminary, but that didn't get my attention last night as the cemetery. It's a 13-hour flight from Seoul to Detroit. And fortunately, I, um, for some reason, I just sleep really well on planes. I don't know why. It's, uh, I think, kind of a spiritual gift. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's in 1 Corinthians 12, but honestly, I don't read the New Testament that much, so I can, <laughs> couldn't really tell you. So I'm feeling really good. I'm grateful for this invitation, the great hospitality. I'm not sure if this is Kentucky hospitality or Wesleyan hospitality, but it's fantastic. Uh, I'm not that familiar with this part of the country. Uh, this is my second time in Kentucky. I have been to Indiana several times through a place called the Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning, but I've never been to Missouri or North Carolina or Tennessee. Uh, I've never been to Ohio, but I feel like I know Ohio pretty well after watching six seasons of Glee, which is, as I understand, pretty much a documentary of life in Ohio. But throughout my life, I've lived in big cities. I've lived in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Seoul, Korea. And these are very big cities. Uh, take Seoul, for instance, where I'm there right now in the midst of a year-long sabbatical. Seoul has a population of over 10 million people. But what's really remarkable, the actual geographic size of Seoul is actually very small. It's a lot smaller than New York City. In fact, the population density of Seoul is 50% greater than the population density of New York City. So I want you to imagine taking four million people and throwing them in New York City with the present boundaries. That's what Seoul is like. And so how do you do that? How do you put 10 million people? The most remarkable thing is 10 million people is within the city limits of Seoul. If you count the Seoul metropolitan area, we are up to 25.6 million people in that region. There are so many people in Seoul. I was driving down from Indianapolis, and I'm like, where is everybody? This is so weird. It's so spacious here. So what do you do with 25.6 million people? Well, you expand up and you expand out. So we presently live in a high-rise apartment. They're all over the place. Our apartment has 24 floors. Uh, and you expand out. Uh, Seoul is getting bigger and bigger, and the suburbs are getting bigger and bigger. And we're not talking just small developments but enormous technological centers in the outskirts of Seoul, huge apartments, sites that were previously filled with agriculture, for raising rice and peppers and cabbage, are now these incredible corporations and companies and factories. It is remarkable watching land transform. And for an example, there is an area called Gangnam, which you might have heard of from a certain K-pop star from a couple years ago. Gangnam literally means south of the river. It's an area of Seoul. And when my mother was growing up, it was agricultural, it was rice. Recently in Gangnam, uh, the co corporation Hyundai brought some, they bought some land. They want to make Gangnam their new corporate headquarters. So this parcel of land is less than 20 acres in Gangnam. And it, Samsung heard that Hyundai wants this, so now they wanted it. So they entered this bidding war. And last fall, Hyundai won the bidding war and they're purchasing this less than 20 acre block for 10, billion dollars was the price of this land for less than 20 acres. And it was actually triple the valuation that analysts had thought this land was worth. 
$10 billion. And I realized that my mother's generation, who were very young during the Korean War, they're watching the ideology of land completely transform in Korea. This land that was dedicated towards making sustenance, making food, making um, grazing cattle like one or two at a time is being transformed into what is literally some of the most expensive real estate in all the world. Now what's so striking is how much this land ideology takes place in me as I drive from Indianapolis to Wilmore, Kentucky. So my observations of Wilmore, Kentucky. It is very, very green. Based on Facebook, I thought it snowed year-round in Kentucky for my <laughs> Kentucky friends. Alaska thinks it snows a lot here in Kentucky. Uh, it is so green. And you like Waffle Houses. Um, White Castle is a real place. I'd seen it in movies, but I've never actually seen a White Castle in my life. And it's so spacious. Uh, I was told that there might be some traffic in Louisville, and I drove through Louisville about six, and I thought to myself, this is traffic? That's so cute. <laughs> this is not traffic. It feels very spacious, very pristine, very empty. Uh, it's amazing, actually, how green it is. I don't actually see much green in my life in Korea. Uh, too many buildings, too many cars. In Korea, you travel by subway or public transportation, usually. And during rush hours, they literally have people, their job is to push you into subway cars to make sure that you fit. So I have developed a strategy. You just find someone that looks like they don't smell too bad, put on my headphones and just kind of plant myself until I get to my stop. But you're literally body to body. I'm driving down, I think, the 65 and thinking, wow, it is so spacious here. There is so much land. And so I would like to propose the idea that the concept of land, like other concepts in biblical texts, are maybe much more akin to the non-Western world than they are to the Western world. Because even with this transformation of land in Korea, there's still some fundamental ideologies that remain. For example, land is still deeply tied to our identity, but it's a national and kinship identity. In America, in the West at least, I think land is more tied to individual identity. But the question where you want to move to wasn't really known in Korea until very recently. It certainly wasn't known in ancient Israel. What are you talking about? You live where your parents live and where their parents live and where their parents live. In fact, you have a family burial right there. Uh, there's no concept of real estate agent. It's weird to sell property. You had to sell it only within your own kin. And in Korea today, there are still debates, despite the skyrocketing price, debates on certain things tied to land. One of them, there's a fierce debate with Japan in regards to some islands, no agricultural value, just pure rocks, but they want it to be Korea's, and Japan wants it to be theirs. It's part of the national ideology of land. Another thing, there's a debate over importing rice. A lot of people believe that even though, you know, Korean is very mountainous, so it's not actually that efficient to grow rice in Korea, but it means a lot to the people of Korea to eat rice that was planted and grown in our own country to the point that they're willing to pay more for that. There's something about the sustenance that they bring. And a lot of those concepts are a little stranger to the Western world. Uh, my mom's family, my grandfather left his plot of land to my mom's oldest son. That's just the way that life works. And he now has taken over the farm, is getting ready to pass it as well. And on that land, there is, in fact, a family grave. 
where my grandfather was buried, and his father was buried, and his father was buried, and actually it's within sight. And I wonder, what does that do if you're raised in a land where you can see the family plot? I think it does a lot to uh, how you view life. Imagine holding your young child in light of that plot, seeing what your space is in life. And in the, in the Korean culture, it is crucial that the land stays within the family, that is passed down patrilineal, with apologies to uh, the women in here. That's just part of the patriarchal nature of Korean society, uh, which is changing slowly. And I suspect in Jeremiah 32, this non-Western concept of land might be very helpful. So Hanamel, the son of your uncle, says, buy my field, that is an antidote for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. You are not allowed to sell the land to anyone. And imagine what that means. When you live in a place, you don't put down this enormous down payment and make payments over 30 or 40 years to own it. You do not sign a rental contract and put in a deposit and worry that the rent will go up or you might be evicted at some point. The land is yours. It's because it belongs to your kin. And the land is your sustenance, it is your living quarters, it's also your future, like your 401k or whatever that might be, your retirement. It's what you pass on to your children. And how does that play into your ideology of land? It means you don't really own it. The land is of God, and you're just stewarding it for the next generation. It's not really yours. It's God's gift to you. So in Jeremiah 32, the prophet is commanded to buy a parcel of land. And there are three aspects of this passage that I want to bring to attention to this Asbury Seminary community. In Jeremiah 32, three things that God does in the midst of this crisis. And the first thing is that God threatens. God threatens through most of Jeremiah. In fact, this passage comes from something called the Book of Consolation or the Book of Comfort. Jeremiah is pretty brutal. You have sinned and punishment is coming in the form of the Babylonians. In Jeremiah 30 through 33, you kind of take a different tone, where in the midst of that threat, there is promise and comfort from God. And this crisis is very severe that God has threatened. According to the earlier part of the chapter, it's about 588 BC. Babylon is going to siege Jerusalem. And because of this prophecy, Jeremiah is not that popular in the king's court, so he's placed under house arrest. In the old times, they had prophets that worked for the king, and the prophets would say what the king wanted to hear. It's almost like some sort of propaganda, but Jeremiah didn't play into that, and so Zedekiah was very disappointed with him. And this crisis was real, as we know, ancient Near Eastern empires were not compassionate. They were not known for their grace and mercy. They were known for their destruction. And if you remember the portrayals of Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible, he certainly isn't any exception. He was brutal, he was punishing, he was vindictive. The Babylonians followed these long-standing traditions to raise their lands, to destroy, and to plummet. One example would be orchards. So they would siege a city, and in an orchard, which would be outside the city walls, all the residents would be inside the walls and they'd try to hold off the siege by slowly using what food supplies they have left. But outside the city walls are the vineyards and the orchards. So let's take something like an olive tree. You plant an olive tree, you have 10 years before you can get your first olive. You plant an olive tree, and you have 50 years before it reaches its full productive capacity. So when you have an olive orchard, it's really a labor of love for your children, for your posterity. 
they are the ones to benefit from that. So imagine being within the city walls and seeing the Babylonians chop down those trees and burn them. So even if you survive the siege, you won't have anything to eat after they leave. That would be so devastating to see no hope in that what was coming, according to Jeremiah. Not only was the enemy powerful, but they were going to take the land. They were threatening to take this gift of God. Land is so central in the theology of the Old Testament. It's such a common trope. The whole Pentateuch culminates in approaching the land. Joshua is all about taking the land and the vision of the land. Samuel Kings is filled with stories of how God protected Jerusalem, including a similar episode over 100 years ago. But in this case, God says, I'm not going to protect you anymore. The Babylonians are going to come. It was an awful and scary time for them. So God threatens in the midst of this crisis in Jeremiah 32. But God also commands in Jeremiah 32. In verse 7, Jeremiah receives word from God that his cousin will sell the field. So God tells Jeremiah to await this message. We don't know anything about this cousin. We know where he came from, so this is the right hometown of Jeremiah. Therefore, Jeremiah is eligible to buy this because this is part of the Benjamin country. This is part of his extended kin. And so in verse 8, the prophetic word is confirmed, and Jeremiah's cousin comes and says, buy my field. And we actually know a lot about land transactions, and Jeremiah 32 follows it pretty well. There are about 100,000 of actual Babylonian documents and their economic documents, and many of them are land transactions, buying land or selling land or inheritance of land or partition of land. And they're done essentially the same way that you read here. You write this in cuneiform on clay, and if you bake it, apparently they become as durable as like hockey pucks. I've never actually touched a hockey puck in my life, but that's what I'm told, that they're very durable if you bake them. Um, you would have them, you would sign a deed, you would have witnesses, and oftentimes there'd be more witnesses than the actual contract. And then you would seal them. If you did not have a seal, you would do a fingerprint, or the hem of your garment would serve as some acceptable uh, authentication process. And in this case, uh, 17 shekels of silver, it's a significant sum. If you can guess one shekel of silver, 7.8 grams, was roughly, very roughly equivalent to one month of labor. And so it's a pretty sizable amount. And so here in this passage, we have some redundance. Verse 7, buy my field. Verse 8, buy my field. And again in verse 8, go buy it yourself. It's interesting to me that Jeremiah 32 has all this detail. We knew how to buy land, but he has this. And I think what is happening is in prophetic literature, symbolic action is, is often some sort of embodied word of God, that what Jeremiah is doing is modeling obedience to God. I think it's important that these details are there. And in verse 8, we have a gem. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. Then I knew. Jeremiah was like us. Jeremiah heard the word of God, but he doubted. He wasn't sure. It wasn't until there was affirmation that he knew. But before that, he doubted. I love this because there's a human side to Jeremiah that I see. Why would I buy this land? It's going to be invaded. It's going to become worthless. Why would I waste time on this? But then I knew this was the word of God. And from that point, the cadence of the text of what Jeremiah did, I bought and weighed. I signed, sealed, got witnesses, and weighed. I took the deed. I gave the deed. I charged Baruch. Each of these steps 
was a way for Jeremiah to be obedient to God. So God threatens in the midst of crisis. God commands in the midst of crisis. And finally, God promises in the midst of crisis. Verse 14, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. We know how the story ends. The Babylonians come and they capture and they burn the city. Not only do the Babylonians enter the temple, they take all the precious goods and take them back to Babylonia. They disrupt two enormously long-running institutions of Israel. The monarchy is done and the temple has been burned down. There was devastation, forced social displacement, destruction, death. Some refugees flew to, uh, fled to Egypt. Others, labeled in Jeremiah and in 2 Kings as the poorest of the land, stayed in the land to make whatever salvaging they could. Some were captured and made a spectacle before the Babylonian court. But God promised in a generation the Babylonian empire had ended. And in fact, the people were given the opportunity to return, to reconstruct the temple, and to refocus the worship on the Lord. They were given the opportunity to rebuild and replant and set life anew. This was the promise of God, that they return to their land. As I look at Jeremiah 32, I think about you, the students, and the staff and faculty here at Asbury Theological Seminary. And I also look back retrospectively at my own seminary years. I know seminary is a very tough place. You know, there's another ATS that we know of, the Association of Theological Schools. And their president, Dan Alshire, he likes to quote this New Testament professor. And this New Testament professor says, going to seminary is burning the bridges of naivete and there's no going back forever. In fact, I love that quote so much that I put a slide of that, and that's the very first thing I tell my class. And I honestly tell them, if you want to go, you're free to go. If you don't feel this is the right time, you burn the bridges of naivete, because this is a brutal time. You enter seminary, your presuppositions on God and the Bible, your understanding of church history, it's all going to be radically transformed in a way that is irrecoverable. Because of the nature of our calling, the nature of theology, studying this course is unlike any other subject like physics or French literature because it's so embodied in our own psyche and vocational call. Because once you read Gustavo Gutierrez or James Cohn or Phyllis Tribble, whether you agree with them or not, you cannot look at the Bible and the church in the same way. It transforms you, it shakes you up, it is traumatic. And like it or not, Seminary texts, lectures, assignments, everything you do here at Asbury, they wreak havoc with your life. And on behalf of the faculty, you are welcome. <laughs> it's supposed to do that for you, to reconstruct your faith, but not just the academic and cerebral. I know that life does not stop for seminary. I know that life happens and continues. In one cohort of less than 20 students at George Fox, I had a group of students, and in that single cohort during their studies, we had to deal with divorce, cancer with one of my students in his 20s, a pacemaker for one of my students in her 30s, death of a parent, death of a child, bankruptcy, addiction. Seminary is a crisis in so many ways. 
But I am here to tell you, to encourage you in Jeremiah 32, God promises. He commands and promises in the midst of this crisis. I think the Bible's pretty clever. Uh, sometimes they do these little clever things that are something in this passage. It says, go by it yourself in Jeremiah 32, verse 8. There's one other place outside of Jeremiah where that phrase occurs, go by it yourself. And I think some of you probably know it's in the book of Ruth, Ruth 4, 8. Go by it yourself. And so you learn from your class that this can be called intertextuality, interbiblical exegesis. But what it really means, it's an opportunity for you to think about Jeremiah 32 through the life of Ruth. And you see in both of them, Jeremiah and Ruth, you have a character who obeys God fervently, who is active and aggressive in listening to God's word and executing it. And I think that is helpful for us here. Because as you're in seminary, your spiritual formation and growth is not something that happens by itself. It needs to be intentional. It needs to be deliberate. You're here to learn Greek and Hebrew, and that's great, but that's an ends to a mean, that you can become more theologically sophisticated to better serve communities of faith, however that might be. That this will not happen unless it is intentionally nurtured by you. And I'm speaking to the students, and of course, I'm speaking to the faculty as well. It's so easy to get caught up and other pressures that we all have. I want you to encourage you that through Jeremiah 32, that we have this opportunity to learn, to obey, and to receive God's promise. It shapes you, as we heard on the video. It will shape you in tremendous ways. One story to show you. There's this really well-known ethics professor at a seminary. I'm not going to mention her name, but you could ask me, I guess, tomorrow, and I'll tell you. Um, and she says, I have the worst call seminary story ever. Right, well, what is it? Well, my husband was going to graduate school, and I was with my three very young kids, and they were driving me nuts. I was also caring for my father-in-law, and it was so exhausting. And between my kids and my father-in-law, I just needed some adult conversation. So we didn't have a car, but we lived near the university, specifically two schools, the Divinity School, and the School of Forestry. And I was allergic to bees. And that is her call story. And she said, that's the worst call story. I said, no, that is the greatest call story I've ever heard. I'm gonna tell it to every seminary student I, I meet. So there, here we are. Uh, because God, whatever your intention, whatever your calling, whatever your vision, that will be continually, continuously transformed and reshaped by God into things that you can never imagine. Asbury will shape you, your theological education will, and that is a gift that has been given to you. It is part of your identity and your sustenance and your future and your posterity. That is our land, and to God be the glory. Let us pray. Dear God, thank you for placing us here, bringing us here, the opportunity and the luxury to be challenged, to think deeply, to be within a community doing the same thing. Thank you that we can be shaped. God, I pray for this community that they will intentionally and deliberately seek after you, that their education will be secondary to formation, that through the people here that you will change the world. We pray for all the struggles in the midst of crisis. We acknowledge them as real. We do not want to be reductionist with it as you modeled for us. 
But amidst that, let us not forget the command and the promise, and let us hold fast. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.